Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, this morning, as we talk about and close out our sermon series, we are talking about the person of Esther in the Old Testament. Um, And as we kind of get into this discussion, I want to reflect on a sermon series we did a couple months back, uh, and we actually recited the words this morning. We did the sermon series called Credo, and we looked at the Apostles' Creed, uh, these words that we say, kind of a summarization of our faith. And there's a specific line um, wanting to pull out the forgiveness of sins. And in that Sunday, Pastor Chris talked about two types of sins. We had sins of commission, where we take action, we perform the sin, if you will, Um, or we have the other side of it, which is sins of omission, where we withhold maybe from doing something we know that we should do. Um, We know it's probably for the best, but we don't do it. So we have sins of commission and sins of omission. And the reason I bring that up is because a couple weeks back, you know, jumping ahead a little bit, but still a couple weeks back, uh, we had our uh, ministry of TED Talks where we met Thursday evenings talking about these little speeches that people gave seven to ten minutes long or whatever, and we reflected on them as a group. Well, in that reflection, we had one Thursday night, which uh, Rick and Cindy Johnson talked about regret. Uh, The speaker spoke about how she had made decisions. She even reflected a little bit on maybe a tattoo that she had got. Um, She kind of regretted it, but she ultimately kind of talked about that was what made her who she was. And so we had that type of regret, these decisions we made. And as I reflected on it, I felt like I'm probably someone who's a little bit more on the side of the uh, regret of omission. I regret things, as I look back on my life, things that I didn't do. Things I should have done, um, maybe I didn't think they were good at the time, but looking back on them, I think, man, I I should have done that. Um, One thing that comes to mind um, is as I was getting near to graduating college, a buddy of mine said, Will, let's just... Let's just scrape together all the money we have, you know, maybe we'll take some of our graduation money, and in doing so, let's go to Europe. Let's just pack our bags, no plans, you know, we'll just stay in hostels, we'll just backpack across Europe. Well, I came up with every excuse in the book and didn't go. And I look back on that now thinking, you know, man, what a good time that would have been to go to Europe. Who knows how long we were going to go? Who knows if it even would have worked? But at least I would have tried. Another regret I have, um, thankfully she's not at this service, um, but she gave me permission to tell this story, um, is reflecting on my wife, Alicia, and how patient she was with me. Amen, that she was patient with me. Um, I reflect on how much I waited to finally make her my wife. I regret waiting so long. Um, We had been together for a while, and she was patient with me, and I just dragged my feet. You know, I kind of figured, well, it's not ready. It's not the right time and everything else like that. Thankfully, we are married happily, um, and she stuck it out with me. But I do have a little bit of that regret where I wish, man, I would have made that official earlier, and we would have married and, you know, kind of started our lives that much sooner. But these are all situations I feel like we have in common. 
We have these moments where we get brought into it. We have a decision in front of us. Do we make this decision that maybe keeps us comfortable, maybe keeps us in our safe space, or do we branch out a little bit? Do we put ourselves out there? Maybe we will trip over our words and our actions. Maybe we'll even put our own safety on the line. But at least we would know. At least we would give it a shot. We wouldn't look back with regret, the regret of omission, as I mentioned. And that's what this story about Esther is about. She had a decision that was placed in front of her, and I thank God that she accepted the challenge that was placed in front of her. So let's set the stage a little bit. This is about 500 BC, and there's a king who is in power, and his name is King Xerxes. He is over the Achaemenid, or the Persian Empire of the time, and as you can see, he ruled from 486 to 465 BC. We actually have a picture of the empire here. It spanned this whole region. Um, it was massive. It took up about 21 uh, different modern-day countries. This was the largest empire that existed up until this time. It was 2.1 million square miles large. That's roughly about three times the size of Mexico. There were 127 provinces. It was massive. And you had the king, King Xerxes, who was in control. Well, he was a typical king, if I could say so myself. He was someone who liked his power. He liked his wealth. Uh, he liked uh, just his toys. Um, and he liked surrounding himself with powerful people and pretty women. And the first person that we're going to hear about in the story is actually his queen, Queen Vashti at the time, who ends up being a bit of a bold figure herself. What ends up happening is there's a banquet that's taking place. This is seven days into this banquet. So you have the king and all of his buddies who had been partying, essentially, for seven days' time. And the king goes, why don't I bring my wife out, Queen Vashti? She's the prettiest lady in the land. Why don't we go ahead and bring her out? And she says, no. I'm not coming. And she doesn't. She doesn't come out. Not only is this kind of going to be embarrassing as she's going to be paraded about in front of the king and all of his buddies, but they've also been drinking for seven days' time. This isn't going to go well. She knows better. And so she says, no. And she doesn't go. So the king kind of gets his little, like, counsel together and he goes, she's never said no to me. What do I do? And they said, well, banish her. And he said, okay. So he banishes her. So she's kind of the first uh, character in this story, this first person in the story. She gets banished. Well, then the king goes, well, I don't have a wife now. I don't have a queen. What do I do? So he gets another group together, uh, a group of young male testosterone-fueled men, and says, how do I get a new wife? And they said, hold a beauty pageant. And he says, that's a great idea. So he does. So he holds a beauty pageant, essentially, for this whole region. So you have women coming from all over this area to enter into this. Esther is one of those people. We can see here uh, that this was not just your ever average, everyday beauty pageant. This took time. Anybody been on a first date before? Yeah. You go on a first date, you know, maybe it takes you a couple hours or whatever it is to kind of get ready for it. Well, as you can see from the scripture, this took 12 months to get ready for this beauty pageant. It says, before each woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments, six months with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. This was essentially the bachelor, 
This is where ABC actually got the idea for the TV show, Bachelor. No, I'm just kidding. But this is essentially what it was. All these women trying to gain the attention of the king so that they could become queen. Well, it ends up that Esther wins. She is chosen. She is the one in which the king wants as his queen. Well, as she enters into this position of power, she brings along with her another character, Mordecai, who is her cousin. He is Jewish along with um, Esther, but it's not openly known that she is Jewish. However, Mordecai is a little bit more open about this. But she brings along Mordecai along with her, who's, again, her cousin, but also kind of like a father figure. So they have this close, special relationship. She even kind of seeks counsel a little bit from Mordecai in these tough situations that she faces. Well, as the story goes on, there's a moment as Mordecai is around the palace. There's another character, Haman, who we're going to hear about, who is King Xerxes' right-hand man. And as he becomes this right-hand man, this power goes to his head and expects everybody to bow to him. Well, Mordecai at one point passes by Haman and wants everybody to bow to him, and Mordecai says, no, I'm not going to do it. So he doesn't. He doesn't bow to Haman. So Haman then takes it upon himself not only to try to get Mordecai killed, but then knowing he's Jewish, wants to kill all the Jewish people in the whole region. So Haman, the right-hand man of King Xerxes, after the king had been probably drinking for a bit, says, I've got an idea. Why don't I pay into your royal treasury and you pass a decree that we can wipe out all the Jewish people? And the king, seeing that his royal treasury would get that much bigger, he agrees. And he says, okay. So this decree gets sent out that all the Jewish people in the land would be killed. Well, Mordecai hears about this. He's upset, he's heartbroken, and he ends up going and essentially protesting in front of the palace. He goes and he does so, and he's sending messages back and forth between Esther, calling upon her, saying, you have a chance to do something about this. And this is where we're going to pick up. This starts out in Esther 4. We see these words that Mordecai speaks. He says, if you keep quiet at a time like this, Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. So he kind of says, you might be safe for a bit, but eventually you all will die. And then there's this wonderful line. He says, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this? Who knows? Maybe you were put into this position for this very reason. Esther, you know, this is going back and forth, you know, probably thinking over this a little bit, but then she thinks about it, she makes her decision. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. So this decision is placed in front of Esther. Do I remain safe in the palace? I'll escape harm for a bit, but eventually it's going to catch up to me. Or do I approach the king unsummoned, which is a punishable offense to death, 
and plea for our people. Thankfully, she makes the right decision. But one thing kind of pulling this story apart a little bit and noting is that God is never mentioned in the whole book. God is never mentioned in the whole book of Esther. And I know you may be thinking, I was thinking the same thing too. Well, that's interesting. Why even include it in the Bible if God is never even like directly mentioned? And I think the reason is this. This is a chance for us to see God working behind the scenes. God is always working behind the scenes. He's the one kind of twisting the knobs, pulling the strings, whatever it may be. The only real mention we have of God is when Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. He says, I will not bow to you because I am Jewish, essentially saying, I only bow to God, I will not bow to you. That's really our only mention that we have of God in this book. But when we see that God is working behind the scenes, when Esther sees that, when Mordecai sees that, maybe you've been placed into this position, we see the stories start to unfold how God wants it to unfold for his people to keep his people safe. Anybody familiar with Richard Daly? He was the Chicago mayor from 1955, 1976. Okay, we've got a couple people. Story goes, and this is just what I hear, he was a little bit tough to work for, a little bit rough around the edges. We'll, we'll, we'll say that best. Well, apparently one day his speechwriters came in and they said, hey, we've been working hard. They probably didn't tell him he was tough to work for, but they probably implied it. This is tough work. We think we should get a raise. And this is what he says. He says, I'm not going to give you a raise. You're getting paid more than enough already. It should be enough for you that you are working for a great American hero like myself. <laughs> not, nothing says I got a pretty large ego like that. Well, the story goes on that he was on his way to speak to some veterans sometime later, the backbone of our country, people who had given their lives to service to make our great country what it is today. And he had recognized that there was a little bit of a gap that needed filled to take care of them. Well, not only was he known for kind of being tough to work for, he was also kind of known for not reading his speeches ahead of time. So he heads to this, this, uh, this talking event. He starts talking to them, and he says, you great Americans, you have done so much for our country, you deserve so much. Here is the step-by-step -step plan we have put together to provide relief for you. He flips the page over, and this is what it says. You're on your own now, you great American hero. <laughs> I'm sweating just reading that. I wasn't even there. But Richard Daly failed to see that there were people behind the scenes who were helping him who were looking out for him, who were making him the best mayor that he could be with what he was presented with. And he didn't acknowledge them, and this ended up coming back to bite him. And I think for our lives as well, if we fail to see how God is at work in our own lives, we talk about it being prevenient grace, God at work before we even know the words for God, the language for God, the God that goes before us. This is that story played out. Not specifically named as God, but God still working. And one of the ways that God does work behind the scenes, and just as he did for Esther and for Mordecai, is God places us in situations where we can use our influence, our privilege, and our power for the good of others. As I mentioned earlier, um, I am married to Alicia. Um, 
we've been doing great. Um, and one of the reasons is because I learned this little trick along the way. When Alicia starts talking about her day and her work and maybe a way in which it hasn't been going to what she expected it to do so, I'll ask this question. I'll say, do you want me to listen or do you want me to help fix it? 99% of the time she says, I just want you to listen. So I go to my toolbox, I get a roll of duct tape, I tear a little strip and I stick it over my mouth. <laughs> and I give her a thumbs up meaning go ahead, because I like to fix things. I hear about these things, and I want to get in there. I want to get intermingled. Okay, what can we do? I also find myself on the other side, where if I hear about something that's going on, and it's not something that really related to me, I kind of say, well, it's not my, not my fault, not my problem. You know, I didn't cause this to happen, so why should I get involved? You know, this will cause more effort and stress uh, and worry um, especially when I'm not even a part of it. We have a two-year-old son, his name is Liam, and he's mobile, you know, he's uh, started to walk about six, eight months ago, and he's starting to get faster and faster. This hasn't happened yet, but I know it will. You get into a large crowd, you set him down, half a second later, he's gone, you know. And this isn't gonna be one of those moments where I sit there and I go, well, it's not my fault, not my problem, right? No, this is bigger than me. This is bigger than figuring out whose problem it was. We're going to end up both going and both trying to find him. And that's the same thing that happens for Esther. But I will mention, I will ask for prayers because this challenge of searching after one child will be doubly as hard as we welcome our second child come February um, when our family will grow that much more. So. We're excited about it. We wanted to share this with you all. So pray for us. Come February. We're going to have our hands full. But Esther saw that this problem was bigger than her. She didn't just go, not my fault, not my problem. But she accepted the challenge. Back in June, we came up to the seven-year anniversary where a young man, fueled by hate, entered into a small church, a black church in South Carolina, into a Bible study, and ended up shooting members of the church, killing many. A horrific, awful event. Someone who spoke up in the wake of all that, a pillar, anti-racist figure, was Barbara Skinner. She gave a speech in which she actually gave um, this kind of part of the speech not too long ago in January at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. She had this to say about the next generation and the current generation. She says, it's not your fault, but it's your time. It's not your fault, but it's your time. Esther, it's not your fault that your people are in exile. It's not your fault that the king is a joke. It's not your fault that Haman, his right-hand man, is a monster. It's not your fault that the Jewish people may be exterminated, but it's your time. You have a chance with your position to do something about it. And I think we have that same chance in so many areas of our life. We may not be the king or the queen or whatever it is, but we can use our positions. It may not be our fault that a coworker Maybe a classmate is difficult to get along with and get picked on. 
but it's our time. It may not be our fault that racism and injustice and prejudice still exist because of people for the color of their skin or their gender, but it's our time. It may not be our fault that the person we see standing on the corner has knowingly made decisions that have got them to this place and they're asking for money to provide for their food, provide food for their family and themselves, but it's our time. I thank God that Esther answered that call and stepped into it. It was her time. So Esther took the chance. She says, if I must die, I must die. And she goes and she approaches the king. She pleads to him and he obliges. We pick up in Esther 8 saying, it says this. It says, then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, I've given Esther the property of Haman and he has been impaled on a pole because he tried to destroy the Jews. Now go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name, telling him whatever you want and seal it with a king's signet ring. Esther took a chance. She used her position, and thankfully, it paid off. Real quick, we're going to hear a clip from a song, um, and I just want to give a word of warning to those of us who have joined on Facebook. We had a little hiccup. If that's the case, we'd encourage you maybe to check over on our YouTube page. But as we listen, I want anybody to kind of listen out and see if you recognize this song. Anybody recognize it? I think I might have heard it. Dream a little dream, Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. I know, you probably want me to go. Just keep playing the song, Will. Just pray and be done. Let's just listen to the song. Well, the story goes that if it wasn't for somebody, somebody else who kind of put themselves out there, we might not be hearing that song today. Ella Fitzgerald um, produced many great jazz classics that we have today. Uh, that song kind of gained recent uh, popularity again uh, by featured on the TV show Stranger Things. It's also kind of one of the reasons I like, I hear that song and I go, I got to get to Paris. I got to figure out how to like move to Paris because uh, it just makes me want to go so, so bad. A little cafe, drink a little cappuccino. But the story goes as this. Ella was not getting the gigs um, that she eventually got. Some people say it was the color of her skin. Some people say it was her physical appearance, just not being skinny enough or pretty enough. Some people say it was a combination of all of them. Well, Marilyn Monroe heard about Ella Fitzgerald. She saw her and saw the gifts that she had, and she decided to do something about it. This is what Ella has to say about Marilyn. I owe Marilyn Monroe a real debt. She personally called the owner of the Macombo, which was a popular club at the time, and told him she wanted me booked immediately, and if he would do it, she would take a front table every night. She was an unusual woman, a little ahead of her times, and she didn't know it. Marilyn Monroe knew what her popularity, what her position would do. She knew the press would be there, and essentially what that would do then for the popularity and the fame of Ella Fitzgerald. She put herself out there so that Ella could be elevated. And as we close out this series, I think about the women in my life who put themselves out there. 
I think about the women of faith over thousands and thousands of years who have put themselves out there. I think of the women of this church who put themselves out there, who said yes to the call that God has placed on their lives. And I'm so glad that they said yes. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks that we do have these women who said yes. And as we continue to see and hear them say yes, we give you thanks. For it's all for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy and precious and mighty name. Amen.